You should never get so wrapped up in the data that you forget about the entire reason that you're doing the whole thing in the first place. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn why nutrition is important for entrepreneurs, what it means to break one rule and break it hard when it comes to creating new products, and the big downside when it comes to overvaluing data. Before our show, I wanted to chat about Shopify shipping. Did you know that you can buy shipping labels for your orders at home and print them with a regular printer, get shipping insurance within the United States, and receive discounted shipping rates with certain carriers with Shopify shipping? There are no additional fees, carrier account, or app required. This is included with your Shopify plan, so check out Shopify shipping today at shopify.com ship. Today, I'm joined by David Lester and Ben Goodwin from Olipop. Olipop is a deliciously refreshing tonic that is crafted with prebiotics, botanicals, and natural plant fiber to support your microbiome and benefit digestive health. And was started in 2017 and based at Oakland, California. Welcome, Ben and David. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So you two already, uh, you know, have um, your your veterans in this space already, the beverage industry. Talk to us more about that. What was your experience? What did you? What was the opportunity that you saw in the marketplace that led you to to starting the company? You know, we've got kind of unusual uh, background. I think a lot of businesses in in this space are kind of you know founded off of kind of more of like an observation of white space or like a trend that is uh, primed for exploitation. You know, for us. Uh, well, in particular, me, I mean, basically this kind of the whole uh, nexus of this started when I was a uh, kid. I actually grew up eating a standard American diet and grew up a lot of, had a lot of cash. And so, you know, that pretty, pretty materially affected my health. By the time I was a teenager, I was overweight and had anxiety and all these other kind of issues. And I uh, really just had like the epiphany one day at 14, the young age of 14, that this was not going to create a good life. And I needed to like overhaul everything. So I started, you know, paying attention to my nutrition, dieting, exercising, eventually got into like therapy and stuff, which is all super useful. But I lost 60 pounds in less than a year and um, really kind of became a little obsessive around nutrition and, and really curious and fascinated by it. And then what I discovered over time was that what I was putting into my body was having a really profound impact, not just on my physical energy, but also kind of my cognitive clarity, my emotional stability. And I became really fascinated by what that, that link was um, and really saw nutrition, nutrition as an opportunity for personal growth and development and kind of self-actualization. So that's really where all this started. Um, you know, there's a longer story associated with that, but basically, you know, I was a, I ended up dropping out of college when I was 20 um, had a really interesting mentor who won a Supreme Court case by himself, uh, with no legal representation, which kind of like blew my mind um, and really kind of drove me, deciding to drop out of college and then got right into product development and consumer packaged goods and, and beverage. Um, and then, you know, I helped a friend uh, get a kombucha company off the ground at this point 15 years ago when, when I was 20. And that's where I learned what the microbiome. Uh, is, you know, it's all the non-human microorganisms, bacteria, et cetera, that live in and on your body that are concentrated in your digestive tract. And the microbiome has this really profound influence on your overall health from your digestion to your immune system, to your organ function. There's also this thing called the brain gut axis. So basically we produce 
the majority of our neurotransmitters and our hormones actually in our digestive microbiome. Um, and there's all sorts of human and animal, study, uh, animal studies that show that uh, this, the health of your microbiome has a pretty profound impact on you know, how your brain works and how your nervous system works and how your endocrine system works and, and your hormones function and stuff like that. So that was really the light bulb for me um, way back in my early 20s of like, wow, this might be the, the, the system that created the outcome for me personally uh, and kind of became just like totally hooked on this is, this is something I kind of want to lean into for the rest of my life. And, you know, the more you research it, the more you realize that we have a chronic nutrition issue in, this, in the United States um, and that, that those issues we have around our nutri nutri nutrition health are affecting our metabolic health or affecting our microbiome health or affecting our digestive function. And so, you know, basically, Dave and I now working together for the last nine years, really what our focus has been on is finding the most scientifically credible and impactful ways to benefit people's microbiome and digestive health, um, but to package it up in a highly accessible format that is, you know, uh, reaches the, the most, the most people. And that's more or less, you know, what the kind of foundational kind of composition of Olipop is in its intent. Yeah, appreciate that. And I think um, just just an aside for a bit is that there's lots of entrepreneurs listening and I think there is this attitude of hustle and kind of just white knuckle your way through it all and just embrace the struggle of it all. And not really focus on some of the fundamentals that you're talking about, about, about health. Talk to us more about this, like as, because again, the audience is our entrepreneurs, like how important after, you know, before and maybe after you had discovered the importance of nutrition and stuff, how important is that for, for entrepreneurs? I mean, I can't even begin to describe how important it is. Uh, you know, obviously to the point, you know, that you were kind of referencing, um, if you don't have a high level of like uh, emotional and oftentimes even physical pain tolerance, you know, entrepreneurialism might not be the right fit for you. So yeah, that that's a part of it. Simultaneously, you know, entrepreneurialism, especially um, if you're lucky enough to, uh, you know, start to experience some success, or if you actually also, if you got to go through kind of like a difficult phase is it's, it's kind of a marathon of sprinting. So it's like the worst of <laughs> worst of both worlds uh, a little bit. It's also it's supremely rewarding, especially when you have a positive experience. Um, so managing, uh, addressing um, your physical and emotional and psychological health uh, is, is non-optional. You know, it's not, it's, it's very, very foolish. It's like to, to, to kind of ignore those things um, because you're going to have to be at it for a while. You're going to have to take care of yourself. You know, uh, psychological health issues, especially are, are really rampant in the entrepreneurial community. And, you know, if you're like me, I kind of had a rough time growing up. Uh, a lot of entrepreneurs actually experience trauma in their lifetimes, which actually can make them more susceptible to some of the disruptions that might naturally come through a higher risk occupation. So I, I really view it kind of as I need to kind of have access to the deeper parts of myself and, and how I really get myself to work and function optimally. And quite frankly, like take exceptionally good care of myself uh, because that's actually going to create the most sustainable um, dynamics for me to really put the pedal to the metal and, and go for it elsewhere. Makes sense. And you, you mentioned that the, the you two worked together for the last nine years. Was it all in the beverage industry? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, we, we um, you know, I spent about four years uh, doing the R&D 
for uh, the last beverage business um, that the two of us had. And three out of those four years, I was feverishly looking for the right business partner fit, um, went through a couple of cycles of that, and then finally um, had the, the fortune to meet David. Um, you know, after meeting two weeks later, we kind of shook hands and honestly haven't, haven't looked back since. You know, we have a, we're very different people. Uh, and we also cover different areas of expertise, but we have pretty materially overlapping, uh, principles and values and, um, you know, and really have gained a deep level of understanding for each other, um, over time, but we've always worked together on launching our own businesses and, and yeah, we've just worked, we've worked together in the beverage space. Awesome. So it sounds like this this um, particular problem that you wanted to solve was obviously very important to both of you. It was a very v- valuable pursuit for both of you. Was there an opportunity that you saw in the marketplace that, that there were, was a sign that other people might be interested in in solving for this this problem as well? Yeah, I'm not answer this one, then I'll, I'll kick some over to David just to make sure I'm not hogging the proverbial mic. But I think, you know, in our particular case, when you when you look at the, the raw data, um, you know, according to the CDC, two-thirds of Americans have chronic digestive distress. Um, data coming out of UCSF indicates that up to 88% of Americans have some sort of kind of metabolic dysfunction um, or metabolic disease. So, look, and we, we obviously get way too much uh, sugar in, in this country. Um, and then some of the insights that we had that drove uh, Olipop's functional formulas that we also uh, don't get enough fiber, we don't get enough pre- prebiotics, and we don't get adequate nutritional diversity. So it's kind of a recipe for disaster from the kind of metabolic microbiome digestive front, uh, high sugar, low fiber, low nutritional diversity. Um, and a lot of that's driven by products like traditional soda, uh, which there's there's no lack of clarity on the data front around what that product um, does to your body. And, you know, before the pandemic, we were seeing there was, there was um, you know, reductions in the size of the soda market year on year as consumers were migrating away from that, um, you know, like transparently, like pretty addictive drink, uh, but also really pleasurable and enjoyable drink, uh, but trying to migrate over to healthier, uh, healthier options with a simultaneous, uh, you know, increase in awareness around microbiome, importance in science and a real significant um, increase in awareness uh, around digestive health. So those are kind of the, the, those are some of the kind of broad meta trends. Uh, But in terms of like the exact strategy that uh, we chose to approach it, that was really driven by the science. Um, And, and, you know, the kind of the last five to eight years of microbiome research around dietary intervention versus probiotics um, as kind of being the, the better choice for a lot of people to create sustainable um, microbiome and digestive health shifts. So there's, yeah, some awareness, certainly of the market and, and market trends. Um, but, you know, that has to be combined with uh, what's being indicated as being effective in, in science in order to create a real solution for people. Just to uh, build on Ben's point there, Felix, I think, you know, it's interesting three years ago when we were initially fundraising for this business, um, you know, the idea of a healthy soda was kind of an odd concept. Um, certainly wasn't a trend. Um, you know, people are actually suggesting we do this as like a sparkling water or more of like a kombucha. Um, prebiotics definitely were not a trend. Um, again, you know, we had a lot of questions around why we were doing prebiotics when probiotics 
um, you know, were much more kind of prevalent in the market at that point. And um, so I think there's like a lot of interesting innovation learnings in here. Um, I actually did innovation as, you know, quite a large part of my corporate career and, you know, had the opportunity to launch and see fail um, a lot of products uh, too. But, you know, one of the fascinating things about working with Ben is his focus on solving a real human problem and then finding the best way to do that. So we actually went and pitched investors with a lot of confidence um, because, you know, we weren't following a trend. Um, as Ben said, we were following the science. Um, that being said, you know, you're also looking for things like where is that uh, consumer dissatisfaction? And the soda industry to us looked like a space that was ripe for disruption because there's aspects of soda that people love. It's delicious. It's nostalgic. It has deep, you know, culture and emotional resonance. But there is one fundamental problem that is it's not good for you and it has way too much sugar in. Um, you know, and ideally people would like to be consuming products that have some nutritional benefits. So, you know, you combine those things. Um, and you know, essentially, you know, what we've executed with the concept is, you know, the 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 idea of, you know, break one rule and break it hard. And the rule that we broke is uh, the ingredients panel. It, this is fundamentally different than, you know, a can of Coke. Um, but everything else is quite familiar to people. Um, you know, it is delicious, familiar fl- flavor profiles. It looks like a soda. Our marketing is kind of fun and vibrant. Um, and, you know, I think that gives you kind of a really rich combination for successful innovation. Yeah, I think this is an important point that I want to spend some more time on around this idea of following the trend versus following the science or the efficacy of the the solution that you're bringing to the table. And I think I think it, it, there's one piece of that you added on that I think is important, which is that you also looked at where the customer was dissatisfied, right? Because you could come up with a solution that you're just so sure is going to solve problems, but just people are not aware or they don't care about. The, the problem as much. Talk to us more about that. Like what is the combination of trend versus science and customer dissatisfaction? Were these things that you guys knew at the, the outset or were they things that you learned along the way and modified the, the product along the way? Talk to us more about that. So, I mean, you know, one, one of the things that's uh, was helpful for us, which, you know, we probably should address as well is that it, our prior venture did kind of use a lot of the same, um, it was almost like a testing ground for us to investigate this, um, this like uh, this opportunity. So, you know, we had uh, in our prior beverage, you know, it was also a healthy drink. And we did have some flavors that that were pretty distinctively kind of soda based. And we saw them really take off. Um, so, you know, we basically it was almost like we did a large scale <laughs> clinical trial or or marketing study kind of. Uh, on our own, you know, in our in our prior venture, which did give us a lot of really, uh, you know, material insights. But I think like, from a broad brush kind of stroke perspective, you know, I, I think the best kind of innovation, uh, the point that David made uh, around solving human problems, like there has to be uh, an insight, like a lot of times people overly kind of, you know, they, they're like, oh, we, we know we need data. We know we need data. We need market data. We need data on our customers, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's not, that's certainly not untrue. Um, but the data is only so useful as your ability to synthesize it and come up with an insight, right? I think a lot of times people just become um, kind of paralyzed in the data without realizing that um, the magic is the, is the conversion of the data 
into, into an insight. And that's kind of more of a right brain process, to be honest, like mechanically. And it's more of a uh, deep brain process as well, because you've got to bring together a lot of kind of uh, divergent uh, data points and come back with some, with some insights. And then you've got to be able to kind of go out and test them. So I think it's important to, first of all, you have to do it in order to be able to communicate the vision that you have over to people that don't already understand it, i.e. investors or retailers or whatever. So you do need to be able to come up with some uh, with some kind of material data points that are supportive, like the the kind of the fact that, like, let's take for a perfect example, like typically in the healthy uh, beverage space, um, focused on digestive health, uh, especially in the natural channel, you've got kombucha. And, you know, kind of touts were good for your digestion. There actually are no clinical trials supporting that, but I'll, <laughs> I'll just leave that for another day. That's how the customer perceives it. But the reality is that kombucha is a billion-dollar industry. Um, and then you go look at soda, and you look at the fact that they're shedding off tens or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of business every year. Uh, but it's still a you know nearly $40 billion industry with over 95% household penetration. So this pretty like logical data there. The 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 soda market is obviously much more ubiquitous. It's it has a really long history with consumers, yet to the point that David made, there are uh, clear indicators both on the kind of research that's coming out and what your doctor is telling you, and also on some of the shifts that uh, soda consumers are making, that there are points of there are points of dissatisfaction and there's a pretty material market that's uh, available. Um, from from that kind of uh, sh- shifting, but that there's also this kind of interest around digestive health. But then you have to then say, all right, here's all these data points. Just um, I have an awareness of the landscape, but then kind of like what do I believe, and what is my insight insight for for um, believing that, and what kind of underlying um, problem am, am I looking to address, and how kind of ele- what level of elegant sophistication um, is involved in my in my solve for that problem. And that's how you can do something that's quite unique and quite disruptive, but not just kind of out on some island somewhere where you you have no awareness of kind of the landscape around you. Yeah. And this goes back to this, the point that you made earlier, which was about how collecting data, doing these surveys, qualitative or quantitative data is not sufficient. You have to be able to synthesize it, actually figure out what can we do with this information. Talk to us more about that. Like what, what is your process for once you've collected the data or maybe it's as important to, to, to on how you collect the data, what kind of questions you're asking and then how do you actually use that in a way that is going to lead to the right decisions for your, your company? I think one, one thing I would say that is, been an interesting insight for me in working with Ben is Ben's very good at what I call like leveraged entrepreneurial thinking. So it's essentially, it's quite audacious in, in, in reframing problems. So, um, you know, the idea of kind of doing a healthy soda, um, was ridiculous to people until we actually made it work. Um, because the logical thing to do is you're like, okay, this problem has too much sugar. You take out the sugar you end up with sparkling water. Um, you know, one of my observations, you know, in, in kind of Ben's process, which kind of fascinating is, you know, putting a lot of these different data points together to get to this kind of leverage solution that actually reframes, um, you know, like, you know, very, very malleable in approach to like what is possible. Um, and, you know, it's kind of interesting that, you know, the, the challenge here is, 
you know, as you look at all the different data points, one is it's very difficult to get people to change behavior. Um, and we've been quite unsuccessful as a natural products industry in really kind of, you know, creating a more ubiquitous market and getting people to um, switch their kind of Coke for kale juice or whatever. And, you know, when, when you understand the reasons why, um, you know, you start to approach the problem in a different way. And, and so, you know, uh, again, I'm kind of paraphrasing Ben here, but it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. The, um, you know, Ben sort of described it before is like, you sort of switch out the, um, you switch out the poison for the solution, essentially like people love soda. It's a great vehicle. So why not use it to deliver, um, nutrients to people? Mm. And Dave, I think one thing you mentioned earlier was about breaking one rule and breaking it hard. And I think this is very related to what you just said. Say more about this. I think this is something that that I think entrepreneurs kind of dip their toe into water when they want to make some changes. But you're saying like break it hard. So tell, tell us more about that experience that of, of breaking a rule hard. You know, I love what I would call like elegant innovation solutions, which are just like very simple. Um, and um I, I think sometimes, you know, people can tinker around with too many things, but not sort of materially change anything, uh, just kind of becomes a bit messy. Um, or, um, you know, you're lacking in innovation in one space, say the liquid. And so you end up doing really wacky packaging to kind of compensate because, you know, you need some quote unquote magic in there. Um, but you're sort of looking for it in the wrong place. Um, and um, you know, so I think the, you know, the rule about kind of, or the, the kind of principle of break one rule and, you know, break it hard is say, look, you know, again, if you're getting people to change um, consumer behavior, um, you know, if, if you present somebody with something that they can't, don't have a framing for and, and the consumer is asking, what is this? Um, your challenge is, you know, pretty significantly greater, <laughs> you know, because like, I, don't, I don't even know what this is to start with, you know. Um, so, you know, with uh, in, in this case, I think we also looked at kind of like brands like Beyond Meat, um, Halo Top, um, Seedlip in, in um, non-alc spirits, um, you know, fascinating brands because, you know, Halo Top, um, you know, broke one rule, broke it hard in, in terms of, you know, the, the kind of nutritional panel, but they, they understood that, you know, ice cream is fundamentally about indulgence. And if you're not indulgent, it doesn't matter if you've got two grams of sugar or, you know, 50 grams of sugar, it, there's no point to it. Cause that is the whole point of, of ice cream. Um, beyond me, everything they do in their marketing is designed to give you the same exact experience you would get from a regular burger it's just that this one happens to be made from plants and is better for the environment. Um, you know, and, and that's really our approach to our marketing too. And, you know, that, that's the trigger for purchasing soda. Like you have to understand the category you're operating in for us. You know, the vehicle we've chosen is soda. That's the, the category where we're operating in. That's the occasion base we're marketing to. That's the consumer motivation that we're targeting as well. So, you know, that category is about refreshment. It's about fun. Um, so yeah, if you're not doing those things, um, then, you know, people are not, <laughs> not going to want to buy what is fundamentally your soda. If you are able to do all of those things and solve for the dissatisfaction they have, that is where you've got a very interesting idea because, 
um, you know, you've got an almost kind of perfect concept, right? You're doing all the things that they love about soda and solving for the one thing that they hate, which is, um, you know, consuming 40 grams of sugar. Mm. And, and what about the, from the education aspect, was it hard to reach the people and explain to them the, the difference between your product and another soda off the shelf or even like uh, sparkling water? Was it, was it a challenge? I think it, it, you know, it is a challenge, um, still, um, you know, the, as Ben mentioned, the soda category is a $40 billion category and we're a long way off, um, you know, getting a, a significant share of that. So, um, you know, there is a lot of people that probably don't fully understand what this is yet. And so, you know, there is a kind of patience in innovation. Um, you know, it's, it's a long-term thing. Um, you know, you have to, um, you know, uh, have, have a long-term strategy over, um, years to, you know, go through different kind of consumer segments, people with different levels of openness to, um, you know, to your concept. Um, you know, initially for us, we start building in, in the natural channel. Um, and you know, people there are very sort of familiar with digestive health. You can find us next to kombucha, um, you know, it's, it's not a major leap for people if they don't understand prebiotics, they at least understand fiber. Um, and as I say, the, the thing sort of to all intents and purposes, you know, looks like a soda. So, you know, people kind of get it. They're like, oh, I see you sort of made a better for you soda. And then they try it. And, you know, fundamentally in CPG, um, you know, your product has to taste good or else, um, you know, it's, it's not going to go very far. And, and, you know, Ben's, formulation skill is, is quite incredible in terms of what it can do with, with these flavors. So, um, so yeah, I, I think there will be an increasing challenge. I, you know, looking at brands like Beyond Meat, it's interesting to see the evolution over five years, how they've, you know, penetrate, slowly penetrated the market. Um, there's a limit to what you can do with your own marketing spend. You're heavily reliant on, you know, shifts in the broader macro environment. For us, a key one is, you know, interest in digestive health increased by 3000% through the pandemic. Um, you know, we can't, no, no amount of marketing budget, you know, dictates that shift. It, it's a kind of societal trend a macro trend. So, you know, to a degree, you have to have the macro trends on your side. There's an element of foresight in that. There's an element of luck and there's an element of being grounded in, you know, science and, and where things will, will inevitably go. Yeah, I think there's this um, agility that's also required, especially when you're you're a, a startup. And one thing that a lesson that that you and your team had learned was around what kind of flavors uh, your your customers would like. And a, a incident earlier in the company around uh, cinnamon cola was something that that caught you guys off guard. Tell us more about that experience. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of it was kind of funny because uh, you know we obviously kind of all right. I worked on the first three flavors, which was, you know, strawberry vanilla at the time, cinnamon cola, and then ginger lemon. And it was a little bit of like a, a they were, you know, I, I felt good about the outcome, the flavor outcome and all three flavors. Um, and I also thought they would give us really kind of interesting feedback on, you know, so you've got strawberry vanilla, which I actually based the flavor off of this hard candy that I loved as a kid called strawberry cream saver. Um, so it's nostalgic for me. Also, it's and and for a lot of other people, also it's just like an intrinsically delicious flavor. The the cola is obviously just going like right up against soda, and then ginger lemon was kind of like all right. And 
it might be kind of helpful just to like have a tester in here to for because we are starting off in the natural channel and just kind of get another sense of what the gravitation is around. Um, but you know, for cola, it the reality is that cinnamon is a flavor in in the flavor mixture of cola already. Uh, you know, people obviously don't uh, you know know what the precise ingredients like clove, cinnamon, orange peel, lemon, lime. There's like a handful of different things that are in that flavor profile. So um, I was like, this is this is kind of interesting. Um, and you know, I bet I could kind of lean in and like accentuate flavor. I also use some like caramel notes and some vanilla notes. So it was this kind of what we try to do or what I try to do with all my formulations is kind of take, like find out what the nostalgic flavor is kind of deeper in that mix. That's going to hit that part in your brain that says, Oh, like something about this is kind of familiar. Um, but then figure out the rest of the flavor architecture that kind of like clearly communicates the soda-esque aspects of that flavor also. Um, and then and then kind of reformats it uh, to make it ownable by Olipop. So it's like, this is definitely an Olipop flavor, but it also clearly signals this kind of soda structure. Um, and there's something in this as well that gives me this kind of deeper nostalgic hit. So that was really the kind of, that's like, that's my generalized approach to formulation for Olipop. Um, and I was just like, well, isn't it nifty? Uh, there's cinnamon in, in coal already. And I've kind of brought in some new different types of cinnamon. Like, everybody will get it. It'll be fun. Uh, and people, people had the association. They assumed uh, that it was spicy cinnamon instead of what it actually was, which is more of like a sweet cinnamon. Um, and so there was a little bit of just consternation around that. Um, you know, and we kind of, we changed it. And the reality is like, I... I barely changed the actual underlying formula uh, from uh, cinnamon cola to vintage cola, but people are still debating online today about how, which one they, they like better, which I think is like really, really funny uh, because it's pretty much the same, the same formula. Um, but, you know, hats off to people feel, feeling that passionately about, about the brand that they want to go online and discuss it. But, you know, I would say this is also kind of just the, the, um, you know, I guess, and then, sorry, to finish answering your question on, on the flavor kind of choices, you know, it's just like the more that we got signals, because then the next flavor I kind of worked on was root beer, um, and that thing is absolutely crushed. Um, I did a cherry vanilla for kind of personal reasons. I actually just, like, don't find that um, there's a lot of good cherries drinks slash any good cherry sodas out in the market that I've been able to find. It's like, I don't, I don't know what is going on uh, where people, companies are putting out cherry products that taste like cough syrup. It's, cherry's my favorite fruit. Um, so it just feels like a bit of an abomination. And I just wanted to contribute to the solution uh, of having like a good cherry product on the market. But, you know, and then we've done an orange soda. We've just launched a grape soda. Uh, we did an orange cream skull. But then we'll also throw like a blackberry vanilla in the mix, which is, uh, you know, like kind of some of these curveballs. And I think that the, our generalized goal is really just, just to keep hitting on these kind of clearly nostalgic flavors that oftentimes I myself, as someone who grew up drinking a bunch of soda, uh, have a certain amount of a nostalgic relationship with, but also really driving kind of a surprise, a, a surprise and delight. We kind of want um, our customers to not totally know what's coming, but then be really excited by the thing that drops, um, have a consistent it's it's consistent but differentiated experience from flavor to flavor so it kind of meets a different need for them it's good for different uh 
kind of experience for them. And that kind of keeps it both fresh, but also also consistent. Um, and that's that's really worked. And, and now we're lucky enough, uh, you know, because we have such a robust D2C platform uh, and we're, we're really fortunate to have a lot of direct kind of relationship uh, conversational ca- capacities with a lot of our customers. You know, we have a multi-thousand flavor request list at this point. And so we can also get really clear feedback on on what uh, flavors customers are still interested in. And it, that is certainly something that I, I draw from. And we all talk about when we're considering, you know, where, where we want to go with our flavor and our kind of brand architecture next. Yeah. And this, this kind of learning early on about what flavors uh, your customers like is obviously much more difficult when you don't have a list of existing customers, anyone reaching out to you. When you learned that it was simply almost like a naming thing, a, re-br- a branding thing that that caused people to, to not try out the cinnamon cola, even though the formulation was almost exactly the same when you relaunched it. How did you how did you learn this if if people just weren't even buying it in the first place? Well, that's what's nice about doing things like demos, right? I mean, you can kind of, you can go out to, because the thing as well is like, a lot of people assume that we were a digitally native brand. We actually weren't. We actually, you know, started in, in brick and mortar retail, then built out kind of more of a fledgling D2C platform, then kind of COVID hit. And, uh, you know, David and the team did an absolutely exceptional job um, at adapting to that and building up that platform. So. And and that has kind of taken on such a life of its own that certain people go like, oh, young brand, huge DSC platform, they must be digitally native, but but we weren't. So there are different ways that you can get feedback from your customers if you're going to brick and mortar retail, um, really just interacting directly with your customers or having brand ambassadors out there that are pulling information back for you, um, you know, talking to the buyers and, and uh, kind of beverage buyers at the different stores that you're at, ask them how, how's it going talking to your distributors. So, uh, you know, if you get out there and you shake a leg and you have your direct relationships, you should be able to get um, data back about how things are doing and and how things are playing out. Um, but I'll also say, like, on that point, like, this is one of the, the great aspects of the kind of dynamic between David and myself. Um, because, like, so the customers come back and say, like, cinnamon coal is a problem. You know, like, I might have been able to react to that, but the David is much better positioned to take a look at that situation and, and kind of come up with a with a solution and execute against it, which I think worked extremely well. I mean, you know, I think oftentimes in teams, especially in founding teams, you need to have an obnoxious, visionary, highly creative, like perpetual disruptor, spoiler alert, that's me, um, who I don't look at beyond me, I don't look at anybody. I try to look at like, what is, what am I actually trying to accomplish? And what's the most interesting way to do that? Um, and then you have somebody, you know, in, with David's profile, who like, he's had a, te- he had a decade of experience of handling innovation, seeing what work, what didn't work, figuring out how to not, you know, blow it up. Um, and so that combination is like, super useful. I kick off a bunch of stuff. Uh, David's like, this makes sense. Doesn't make sense. Let's work to get this done. Um, kind of really great at kind of getting getting those communications communications together, um, and that synergy is really useful. Um, if you don't have a partner that can kind of counterbalance you there, or a team that can counterbalance you there, you know, then you have the task of kind of playing both roles um, simultaneously. But if you can build your team to um, address 
natural spikes and skill sets so that it's balanced and then everybody can kind of uh, coordinate well with each other. That's it's hyper useful. Hey, real quick. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Yeah, you had mentioned that, that David was instrumental in this move to, to D2C. You, you mentioned to us um, off, off air about how it shifted from 5% e-commerce, 95% retail to now 40% e-commerce, 60% retail. Now that you are closer to your, your customers, you have that direct connection with them. Is the product development process any, any different today? Like, how do you make sure that uh, that you are out of those you know thousands of, of of flavor requests you're picking the right ones well obviously you know we stack rank you know we order rank them so we know kind of which ones are um, you know obviously the most requested um, and we kind of say okay like these handful of most requested flavors these need to be a part of the launch sequence somewhere in the life right so we say okay here's our kind of our plan for flavor development over the next, let's call it like three years. And so um, here's these kind of top three ones and, and we hear about them a lot. Um, so I need to make sure that I develop formulas and, and we can roll them out. That being said, I also like the next flavor we have coming out. Uh, it isn't not requested, but it's, it's nowhere near as high on the list. However, I had a very specific concept around it um, that I'm, you know, kind of feverishly kind of clapping my hands together around because I think, it's going to again fall a little more on that surprise and delight side of the fence where consumers are going to be like, I didn't even know I wanted this. Now that I'm drinking it, I see what you did and I'm, I'm excited. So we'll see that. We'll see that kind of, um, you know, we'll see how much that plays out. But for example, like we just launched, I formulated and then we just launched grape, um, classic grape. And um, that was reasonably high request, you know, had reasonably high request rates. I'd say it was like, number four or five in the, in the line in terms of most requested. But the thing that the whole team came away with, and, and I, I felt like I really saw, was that the when someone did come and request grape, the, there was like a, uh, an exuberance behind the request that even though it wasn't like the number one most requested flavor, you could tell that the audience that was requesting that uh, had some like fervency and some real enthusiasm around it. So that is why, you know, I ended up being like that, I think is something that I, I want to work on because I mean, I think, you know, some part of me is just like, I do like making our customers happy and I'm, we're going to be able to make a lot of people really happy with this, with this product. Uh, but yeah, I think that that just means that, that there's either an unserved market. That's a part of your overall mix that you can serve better uh, with that flavor. Uh, and, and that, you know, you're going to make, you're going to make a real impact. Plus I think it, the flavor profile and the can color kind of helps to round out our offerings a little, a little bit, but this is again, getting back to the kind of fundamental underliers around, you've got your data, but then what are the points inside of your data that you're prioritizing as the important ones? Um, you know, how creative are you being in your approach? How are you synergizing that information? And also what is your mission and what are you doing? And how does the data um, relate to choices you should make around your mission? You should never get so wrapped up in the data that you forget about the entire reason that you're doing the the whole thing in the first place. I think I think there's a danger of overvaluing quant data as well at times. Um, I mean, as a society, I think that that's maybe an issue um, in general. But 
I mean, I remember the first innovation project I worked on in my Diageo days, we did very sophisticated product concept tests, blind taste testing on the liquid, multiple liquid variants, um, you know, top box, bottom box analysis, um, you know, went through a whole kind of gate process to launch this thing and it totally bombed. And I was in a bar with my friends and they said it tastes disgusting and it did. And, um, you know, it's just, uh, <laughs> you, you can, uh, it's liquid in particular, you know, um, products that you kind of taste, drink, eat, um, very difficult to work through on a quant basis. I mean, we heavily rely on Ben's palate. Um, you know, I think where you've got a kind of a formulate, a skill formulator, I mean, when we did it well at Diageo was in whiskey, we didn't test it in the same way. We just had master distillers that knew exactly what their vision, they had a vision for the liquid and they went and executed on it. And it's, you know, the sort of, you know, thing of not, consumers not knowing what they want and you're not going and asking them, John, as to kind of dial down this caramel note a little bit or, you know, put a bit more peat in there or something. They're just like, look, here's an amazing whiskey that I think you're going to love. Same thing when Ben's formulating liquids, you know, it's like, you know, you look at, certain data points and and again you just sort of treat them as a as one of many data points and you know there's a you don't need to overcomplicate it either i mean cola is a massive category root beer is um you know grape is acai goji berry is not so if you're launching an acai goji berry flavor it's probably going to be pretty niche because it's, it's just not the same size category when you do come to execute on it in the case of grape that's when you hand over to the the vision of the formulator. Ben had a very clear vision of how he's going to formulate it, went away to the lab, no distractions, um, you know, tasted his way through it, tweaked things, and came out with a product that people are like, this is incredible, but I can't quite put my finger on it. You know, and there's various things as it's very interesting hearing Ben talk through, you know, the layers in the flavor and what hits you on the back end at the front end. No consumer would ever guide you towards that. That's that's a kind of you know, an expert's vision that has taken you there. And I, it has to, when I formulate something, I have to want to drink it and like it. And, you know, the, I, there's nobody more, I'm so critical of these flavors that by the time I'm happy enough with it to, to release it, you know, it's hopefully, hopefully it's going to resonate with customers. Mm. And, you know, there, there's the, the vision and the formula and the taste. And what, what about when it comes to the, the presentation, the packaging? How was this designed with everything from the, the kind of brand identity, the logos, the packaging of the, the, the cans itself? Like, talk to us about that. Yeah, I think it goes back to, you know, the elegance of the innovation. It, when everything kind of works in sync, when it's simple, when, you know, the, the best innovation a consumer just goes, that's obvious. You know, why has no one ever invented this before? And, um, you know, there is a sort of nostalgic thread to the formulation that Ben has developed. Um, you know, consumer packaged goods are as much about emotion as they are function. And I think it's lost a little bit at times in the natural products industry where, we can get very focused on the farm that something was grown on or, or a specific ingredient or, you know, the founder's story itself. Um, you know, it's not why people are buying Coconarios. Um, it's because of the way that those products make them feel. Um, so that sort of, you know, I, I call it kind of like modern nostalgia in, in the concept is carried through into the packaging. You know, our packaging itself is, is pretty kind of modern, minimalist, pastel colors, bright. Um, but 
um, you know, there was a Windsor font um, for the flavor. That Windsor font was almost retired before we started using it. Um, it's very old font, not very fashionable. You know, you combine those two things together, you know, in an elegant way, which which the design team did, and you you deliver something that kind of carries the thread of modern nostalgia through from liquid to packaging. And is this, is this one of those things that that can also be tested, or how can you d- determine whether you are you hit the nail on the head when it comes to the imagery of the the the, the brand? I mean, you can certainly put. It in front of people. Um, again, I'd sort of caution against quant over qual. I think in early stage innovation, qual is very useful because I'd say I remember when we were developing Olipop, we didn't have any money. So I just went and ran like 20 consumer groups myself, um, seven to 10 people, friendship groups across different parts of Northern and Southern California, try to hit, you know, slightly different variations of the target demo we were going after. And yeah, I think once you spoke to about 50 people, you start to see patterns, right? And if you're doing qual, you can understand why they're saying what they're saying. Um, I mean, we actually changed our packaging uh, a month or so before launch. Our investors thought we were crazy. We'd already raised um, you know, a, a series seed convertible note at that point. Um, so they were, you know, they bought into the packaging we'd presented to them, but you know, we could see the pan in the research um, that clearly this was not working. It wasn't communicating. And from what people were saying, we could understand why. Um, you know, we actually, the initial hypothesis, it sounds kind of stupid now, but it, this is where innovation is so difficult because, you know, it's, it's always easier with hindsight. But, you know, the liquid itself, the ingredients in there are quite incredible. You know, you're drinking this soda that has, Kudzu, um, slippery arm bark, um, you know, nopal, cactus, calendula. I mean, it's a, you know, people look at that ingredients panel and like their minds are blown, particularly when they try the thing. So initially we thought we had, we've got to show what's in this um, because people like this world of value is like people have got to, got to understand it. And, you know, Unfortunately, these ingredients are not very aesthetically pleasing. And, you know, trying to put them on a pack was kind of complicated. And, um, you know, what we lost was this the sense of soda. And we could see that from the research groups we were doing. So you don't need to do like a ton of them, but, you know, getting in front of a few people, you can start to see patterns. And, you know, it, it didn't look delicious. It wasn't colorful. It wasn't what people were expecting from a soda. So, um, that's when we got really clear on saying, scrap this idea that it's a, by the way, it's good for you. That's where that has to sit. As much as we want to shake every consumer and tell them about these amazing ingredients and how they're going to benefit their health. Um, most people are just looking, you know, in that moment, they're looking for soda. Um, you know, they're looking for something refreshing and delicious, not necessarily, um, you know, to kind of like transform their digestive health in, in that particular instance. And um, so, you know, the research, the qual research we did was useful in kind of giving us confidence to make that decision and also clarity in terms of, um, you know, the, the the path that we took with the brief. And we made that pivot really quickly. We had to shrink wrap our cans because we don't have time to print them, went to market and, you know, the rest is history from there. Yeah, that, that, that's amazing that you, you basically went through with your kind of intuition i think the the big thing we're learning here is that the data data points are just a a factor a a 
something you should consult, but should not necessarily always lead you um, blindly into into following the data. Oh, 100%. I mean, even even on the packaging thing, it's like we got some of that feedback and it was making everybody real nervous, but we're also like, let's not just like throw the horse out in the middle of the stream or whatever. And then I remember the particular moment was when we got, we got the actual test run of the cans and uh, Dave and I looked at them and I, or, you know, we actually were in separate locations, but I just called them. <laughs> I was like, bro, <laughs> this is obvious. Like, you know, so even in that storyline, while there was a lot of external data points, you know, sometimes just sitting there looking at the physical thing, you've got to be ready to just kind of c- come to grips with reality um, and, and kind of, and trust yourself. Because I think to the point that David was making, it had gotten a little overly cerebral around the presentation of some of the ingredients um, without kind of having an awareness of the actual emotional driver, you know, because the goal of the product is actually to get past people's defense mechanisms and, and facilitate, you know, healthy behavior change and to, to do it through uh, this kind of benevolent, uh, benevolent kind of product offering. And, And that was the thing that we needed to have designers working on the design that really like got that in a personal way. And that's the thing that ended up helping it to translate. Mm, makes sense. Now we'll talk about this, this success that you've had with, with SMS, uh, specifically around a campaign that uh, you had launched that uh, went ridiculously well in just a very short period of time. Talk some more about that, that SMS campaign and the results that you're able to get. Yeah, SMS is a really important channel for us. We were one of the first brands to use it in subscription. Um, you know, is one way that we use SMS. Um, it's, you know, we, the approach we took to subscription is that, um, you know, we kind of have to earn the right to be, you know, for people to subscribe, like just signing up, committing to something that's like quite a big commitment. So we don't auto populate subscribe. Um, we look to kind of win, win your business and, and have you voluntary opt in. When your order is about to ship, you get a text and it says, do you still want this? Um, or do you want to change it for something else? We're about to send it. And you can opt out right then. I mean, we text people before, you know, right before we send it. Um, and, you know, I think people really appreciate that. It's, a, you know, it's an interesting medium because it is the most intimate form of connection. I mean, there's so many people, you know, up in your inbox. Um, I mean, I've got a whole email address that's pretty much a spam now. Um, but there's not many people that text you. Um, so, you know, we keep the communication light. We, we respect, um, you know, the, the, the channel and, and the intimacy of it. And so, um, you know, how we've used it as well is, is, um, you know, say to communicate a new flavor launch and, um, you know, it's an opportunity we've sent out like just a kind of picture that Ben snapped on his own phone of him formulating and, quite a personal message for him to say, look, I've just finished making this for you guys. Um, you know, it tastes amazing. Here's what I did with it. If you want to order it, click here, it's ready to order. And, you know, I think on the last one we did, we did something like $30,000 in sales in the first 15 minutes. Um, you know, the, the click-through rate on a text is, is you know, exponentially greater than you get on email, um, you know, because it's so immediate. Um, but I think, you know, it's having the discipline not to abuse that channel to, you know, respect the intimacy of the communication and, and um, you know, try and offer real value to people, um, you know, via that platform. 
And the, the, the SMS list that you have, these are existing customers? Yeah, we um, you know, allow people to opt in. Um, so they can opt in for email, they can opt in for text. Um, so, you know, as our, um, you know, DC platform has grown, our owned channels have grown, um, significantly as well. And, you know, it's been really important, particularly with, you know, iOS changes and that type of thing. I think a lot of people are looking at, um, you know, the, you know, the data that you hold and, and, you know, that direct relationship you have with consumers. I mean, as a consumer marketer myself of 20 years before this, there was no way of, you had no connection with the consumer. You sell to a distributor, you sell to a retailer, you sell to a consumer. You have no idea who's buying your product unless you invest in, you know, some fairly expensive research. Now we're chatting to them on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, we have a, you know, pretty um, reasonably sized CX team, you know, with this response rate of like, you know, under 30 minutes and, you know, if you email us in with something, if you're satisfied with with the product in some way, um, if you have a question, um, you know, we get all that information and we pull that data as well. So we can see, you know, the trends of, of where our things are going and, you know, what we might need to do to improve. Mm. In what, do you do you have to offer like an incentive for people to join join the SMS list? We offer you know what is typical like a you know money off discount. Um, I think it's fifteen percent if memory serves correct. Um, you know to sign up. Um, I, I think though that um, consumers and you especially see this with Gen Z actually. Um, you know they they're willing to kind of really opt into brands that they like. Um, that serve a purpose in their lives, you know, and we're seeing that with Olipop. Um, as I say, people love soda um, and they're super grateful that, you know, as a company, we've developed a solution that meets their needs. That is like, you know, not taking away the fun and refreshment of soda is allowing them to enjoy an experience they love and is is formulated very purposefully and scientifically back to support their digestive health um, you know, in a pretty meaningful way too. And, and so when you're in that position, it's, you know, people will willingly hand over their information to contact because they want to know when the next flavor is available. And, um, they appreciate the thoughtfulness in the subscription approach, you know, if they forget that they might be going on holiday and want to turn it off, whatever. So, um, you know, I think our reputation is starting to catch up with us in that respect as well. Like people trust our, our, our DTC and CX, uh, platforms they trust the way that we'll use that data um you know i think that become increasingly important for brands as well another thing that we've sorry uh, just a quick one another thing we've done on the text platform which, that i really like a lot is um you know because it's a more personal platform we tend to be a little bit more personal in our messaging so it will oftentimes come from me air quotes or will come from a member of the team um and, you know, we'll also give early access. So if you were on our, on our uh, text platform, you might be able to buy a brand new flavor that's dropping, you know, 48 hours before anybody else gets access to it, which on a normal flavor is kind of fun. Uh, but we've done a couple of limited release flavors, right? So if we have a limited release flavor uh, and you're on the text, you're going to have, a, a, you're definitely going to be able to get your hands on it uh, before it kind of starts to dwindle. Uh, versus the kind of uh, typical, the rest of the consumer base. So uh, early flavor access and kind of like content that you wouldn't necessarily get elsewhere that has more of a personal 
uh, touch, I think has also been a very cool part of that platform for us. And, you know, hopefully something that consumers are responding to. And this, this um, 30K in 30 minutes, was that an example of a, a launch is that, that, that generate those sales? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, people were really excited to see what's next. They, um, you know, so as Ben said, it's text is the, the channel that we use to inform people first because it's, it's for us, it's the most valuable form of communication. So we kind of reward and incentivize that way. So it's like, if you want to hear about something first, get on our text platform. Like that's where you'll get the, you know, the first, um, and we're consistent with that. You know, that's where you'll get the first piece of information. This is available. You'll get it before anyone else. Um, and yeah, so we, we kind of push people down that funnel. And that was actually on an exclusive, that was on a limited release, uh, product uh, that was on our orange cream that, that we did that. Got it. And you know, one thing I've heard from others that have utilized SMS is that the the communication frequency has to be way less than email, needs to be shorter and direct to the point. Is that is that in line with your experience too, or are there other learnings that you developed from from SMS that that you found to be to be useful? Absolutely, on frequency, I would say. Um, you know, it's it's easy to ignore an email in your inbox. It's it's annoying to try and ignore a text you know, pinging into your, into your phone. So, you know, maybe we send two to three emails a week. We send two texts a month um, just to give you some, you know, idea of kind of, you know, ratios. Makes sense. Yeah. Do you remember how large the, the list was at that point for a launch like that? I can't remember exactly where we were up to um, with text at that stage, but um, yeah, this has all been built in a very short space of time. We, I think we're at 12,000. It was about 12,000. I think, yeah. I think we're in that realm. Yeah, it's grown a lot since then, but uh, I think that's about where we were. Yeah, that makes sense. What, what, do you remember, what, or what, rather, what tool do you use today to, to handle these SMS campaigns? There is a range of different tools, actually, that we, the guys use. There's a different one for subscription. Um, I think we've actually just changed tools for our... Um, uh, for our, you know, manage our CX, we're using, I know the guy that's use gorgeous there. We use that for a little bit. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting kind of, as we found, it seems you have to stay up to date with, um, you know, the latest ones out there. It's, it's very useful to have a kind of network of other DTC businesses around you and kind of be comparing notes. Um, because, you know, the space is moving so quickly, even in the last year, um, you know, it feels like a seismic shift, um, you know, in, in the time that we've already been invested in the DTC space. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting as well. It's exciting, you know, last mile delivery, um, you know, has really transformed the profitability of a product like ours. So, um, there's a, yeah, lots of different tools that, um, you know, appear to be changing all the time. Any other ones that you recommend just, just in general for running the business? Shopify. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, it's kind of the key one really in terms of, you know, democratizing what we can do here. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't have off the top of my head. I know, um, you know, if you're listening to this and you're really interested in kind of staying abreast of what we're doing, Eli uh, Weiss on our team, uh, his, his surname is spelled W-E-I-S-S, um, is, post a lot on Twitter, um, about this and, and, you know, the tools that we're using and there's some, 
Um, yeah, really good podcast that he's done that Stephen Vigilante on our team has done as well. Um, but as I say, the, the kind of, you know, it appears it's changing almost every month. You know, we're, we're kind of constantly reviewing what's out there on the market. Yeah, makes sense. So drinkolipop.com, D-R-I-N-K-O-L-I-P-O-P.com is the website. And I'll leave you guys with this last question. What do you think will be the largest or biggest challenge that you want to focus on in the the, the near future? Uh, you know, from, from my side, and I, you know, we're kind of living the dream over here. It's a high intensity. <laughs> it's a high intensity dream. Uh, but, you know, like the goal for us is really um, to create a, uh, you know, a product and a product platform that can really uh, be kind of ubiquitous in its ability to resonate and with customers uh, across channel, uh, across retail channel, across geography, across political belief, you know, basically um, food and beverage really is at the bottom of kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so it's a, it's an amazing tool to, to bring people together. Uh, and, you know, I, so and 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 Soda's done a really really good job of that because it is so universally um, kind of appealing in its taste profile and and kind of in the reaction the neurochemical reaction it facilitates for the consumer. So um, you know it's kind of like the biggest opportunity, but also the biggest challenge will just be con- continuing to um, you know push the product and the brand messaging and the kind of business apparatus into a bunch of different places and, and talking to a bunch of different uh, customers, which really fulfills against the mission, but is, is no, is no easy, is no easy task um, because you've got to find languaging that, that kind of is insightful and still authentic, but can still work across the kind of a broad spectrum, kind of keep leaning into the flavors and taking customer feedback. Um, you know, and, and I think as well, like for us, we put a lot of effort into, into doing all of this and, and trying to build a culture that really humanizes um, kind of three-dimensionally the people who work inside of Olipop, their physical health, their mental health, their emotional health, their motivation, <clears throat> while still pushing them to execute at a really high level. You know, we're, st- we're doing clinical research. We, we finished uh, clinical work at Purdue and Baylor College of Medicine. We got really great results back from that, but we're going to be doing more, which is really unusual for a consumer packaged goods brand, likely have some kind of sustainability missions as we go. So, Performing and in 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 really growing out the base of the platform, performing uh, and executing at a really high level, while still looking to consistently and innovatively um, really do the right thing. Because ultimately, our business exists not just so we can walk off into the sunset with some cash, but our business exists to serve human beings, um, and that includes the human beings in the company, uh, and that includes all the human beings purchasing the product or potentially purchasing the product. Um, and kind of being the best stewards of that mission possible on the broadest scale um, is is kind of that's the nut of the whole thing. But that's also where there's obviously going to be a lot of challenges associated with that. Awesome. Exciting times ahead. So thank you so much for coming and sharing your story and advice, David and Ben. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.